welcome back to episode 10 of the Primrose Chronicles. This episode is entitled The Capital Years. I'm your host and narrator, Marty Young. Today's installment of this podcast series actually takes us off Primrose and back into the years prior to the Young family's move into that neighborhood. It'll be a tale admittedly sketchy, simply because the recollections are run through the observations of a four- or five-year-old, meaning as filled with unintentional errors in detail as the Primrose Chronicles episodes already have been, these facts should really be taken with a grain of salt. I must admit that now, over 65 years later, I'd be hard-pressed to assemble too many stories from those days preceding Primrose. Yet a few brief recollections still come to mind, and a few anecdotes that may bear telling. The first ones I share, only to show the listener that my folks were not slaves to their kids, but rather well-rounded, responsible young adults themselves trying to catch part of the American dream when their first two offspring came along. I shared my tribute to my mom a few weeks ago, before Mother's Day, and next week's episode will do the same for my dad. Today, as I talk about the place they provided as home for first myself and later my sister, you'll find them a tandem team and a rather dynamic duo. I call them such because they were cutting their teeth on parenting as we were doing so with baby teeth, and they were doing it quite well, with both sets of our grandparents close by for support. As I was told, and sometimes shown during family drives downtown during the Primrose years, the Don and Dorothy Young clan, small as it was compared to its later expansion, lived at about 13th and Ruckel on the old northeast side. This was close to Dad's parents, lovingly called by all their grandkids, Gramps and Granny, and a little more about them and Dad's family in next week's tribute. That place, on Ruckel, maybe was a duplex, but it was too small for even a household of four for very long, so Mom and Dad began considering a move. That next residence is the one I'm focusing on in this segment. It was the place on Capitol Avenue. 3944 North Capitol Avenue, to be exact. I remember Dad saying that Grandpa Grant and Grandma Denny, those were Mom's father and mother, had actually helped them get into it. Although I'm not sure if they just helped them with the down payment or actually owned it outright and then leased it to Mom and Dad with an option to buy. It was about two and a half miles south and west of Maple Downs and the future Primrose Homestead. I mastered the address of the Capitol Place early, as well as my phone number, Humble 2835, in no small part because my folks still had a rather active social life with friends from high school, even after the arrival of all us rugrats. Though the husbands had taken different vocational paths, the wives were frequent telephone conversants and often kept up on the milestones of their respective kids on those calls, often in hopes their little one's newest exploit registered first in the competitive world of child development. You know, first teeth, first words, first steps, first housebroken. Then, when the couples got together on weekends, taking turns at being the hosts and hostesses in their respective homes, the kids were almost always in tow. So the claims of accomplishments made over telephone could now be visually verified. Our Capitol residence served as one of those performance halls. After a quick meal of White Castle burgers, 
The moms and dads gathered around the living room or a room equally large and readied their charges for the competition. Mom said in later years, I was precocious, but reticent to show my prowess in things learned in the days when it was just mom and I with dad at work. Because I was the firstborn, mom and dad wanted to prove to other friends with precocious children that they had not birthed the slouch either. The couples I remember, because they remained my folks' acquaintances for many years, even as they moved to the far-off corners of the growing Indianapolis confines, I will mention here, just to note, because they will appear again in Chronicles lore. There was Paul and Tootie Stroud, Bill and Millie Clayton, and then the couple with their kids who joined us on Primrose, Charlotte and Kenny Mills. Now, back to the baby-toddler preschool Olympics. In Mom and Dad's recollection, the friendly rivalry for bragging rights and first accomplishments were usually between the two firstborns of the group. That would be myself and little Paul Stroud. If the parents kept a scorecard, and they might very well have, we were probably neck and neck in performance, style points, achievements, and landmarks until the one night that Don and Dot seeded the title. Apparently all the antics were completed, the steps, the twirls, the vocabulary, the animal sounds, you know, what did the dog say, etc. Oh, I know, some things never change. When Paul and Tootie piped up, oh, we almost forgot. And without even fanfare, drum roll, or introduction, they said, stand on your head, little Paul. And as if on cue, and expecting a treat, little Paul, maybe three and a half years old, planted two hands, and a forehead on the rug in the center of our living room, tipped up, balanced, and lifted his feet together in the air, holding that pose in place through applause and cheers. If that had been today, it would have been a mic drop moment. Back then, it was simply the showstopper. The show was over, literally. It's time to roll that rug up, get out the phonograph, and get the real party started. And that meant dancing. Dancing to the records brought by Bill Clayton, whose story will follow later this summer when we talk about Riverside. Mixed with the special 78s belonging to the couple in whose home they had gathered. Dancing went on late into the night and even into early Sunday morning, if the kids cooperated. It was hoped that the smaller ones would be put down in portable cribs or playpens or in the middle of beds far away from the festivities. But when we got old enough, Nancy and I were fortunate enough to be two who witnessed the deft way they all cut a rug in those dance parties until we ourselves fell asleep on couches or in chairs closer to the action. There were likely some adult beverages imbibed, but I recall no raucous behavior. It is possible that before the night was over, children were more coherent than some of their adult counterparts, and certainly more capable at headstands, but joy and laughter was in prominence. I don't remember spending a family night at any other residences, but I do recall awakening some Sunday mornings that we still had house guests from the event the night before. As I remember those occasional soirees, I also vaguely recall the living room, the dining room, the kitchen layout, which ran from front to back of that capital house, and the bedrooms upstairs, 
but not much beyond that. I remember the house location proper. It sat high above Capitol Avenue on the west side of the street, two blocks north of the major east-west thoroughfare on the north side, which was 38th Street. A long, for a preschooler anyway, a long set of concrete steps came off an already elevated columned front porch and led to the sidewalk. Sitting up so high above the busy street, it seemed to offer a level of protection and privacy, as did a narrow, overgrown, vacant lot to the south. A narrow new residence, a manufactured home, I think, went up on that lot just before we moved, but for the most part, I only remember a dirt path across it to the neighbors and a gully toward the back where rhubarb grew wild and Dad had an annual crop for his favorite pie. Mom occasionally attempted making the specialty, but Dad usually said it was good, but not as good as his mother's. As a result, my mom quit trying. That would teach him. Funny the things that come back to my mind and others that really haven't. Perhaps with an extended time of recollection, a few sessions of hypnotherapy, and a fertile imagination to fill in the gaps, I could flesh out a number of stories from the capital years. But for now, they combine into a series of black and white snapshots that I reiterate in no particular order and with no particular attention to equal coverage. I must admit that now, over 65 years later, I'd be hard-pressed to assemble too many stories from those years preceding Primrose. Yet a couple of other brief recollections still come to mind. I do remember running up the staircase just inside the front door on the right to a landing about four steps up, and then turning left and up the rest of the treads to the second floor, and then down the hall, passing doorways left and right. I don't recall which was Nancy's and which was Mom and Dad's and which was the bathroom and the hallway led straight to my bedroom on the back side. My bedroom was also my playroom, and it was also my location for discipline. You know, go to your room and I'll tell you when you can come out. It was also the location of a window that overlooked the backyard. From that vantage point, I could wave goodbye to Dad. Until I was eight years old, it was Daddy. On his way to work each morning, lunch pail in hand, Monday through Friday. He didn't get the same send-off when he headed off for night classes at Butler University or part-time jobs, some evenings and weekends. And that window was also where I kept an eye on the neighbor's cat, who ventured into our yard and of whom I was deathly afraid. Okay, now you know. My adult aversion to cats is really a cover for my abject fear of felines. There. I've said it. Now perhaps I can get some help. The backyard had a swing tied high to a large tree. I think it was a buckeye tree or maybe a walnut, but it bore the same kind of fruit that was suitable for slinging at targets on the garage, throwing at squirrels on the branches, and chucking them at that darn cat that was using my sandbox. In the summer, if no cat was in sight, after Daddy left, I could go to the backyard and swing on that rope and board apparatus for seemingly hours in the cool, early moments of summer. It was quiet back there, and it made it seem like I was the only kid awake. If there had been a rain shower overnight, the sand in the sandbox was great for packing into cans and 
small buckets to make castles and walls on which to place my cowboys, Indians, and soldiers, and conduct various campaigns of Western life and war. I was taught early to identify objects that were not healthy parts of the regular sandbox contents, and how to remove them before beginning my playtime. That training was considered primary by Mom, as well as learning the proper disposal of the same. There. Was that a delicate enough description of the problem and the appropriate steps I needed to take to make the area usable? I remember also that at the rear of our backyard, a three-car garage spread north and south on the property, opening to the alley, and then one door entered the garage from the backyard. The automobile doors of the garage opened onto an alley, but only one was needed to open for our single car. The vehicle I remember most was a 1947 Chrysler New Yorker, rub-off blue and oxidized purple in color. The reason only one of those three doors were needed was because the rest of the garage was filled with tools, workbenches, spare tires, and the many treasures Dad and Grandpa Grant gathered, always assuring Mom and Grandma Denny that they had a plan for each piece they unloaded. Completing the rear property line was a metal swinging gate with a latch. It sat at the end of a sidewalk that ran along the north side of the garage, and it too opened onto the alley. And it was beyond that gate that our two metal garbage cans sat. And it was from that backyard gate that I could weekly watch the team that was the most intriguing and engaging in my young mind. Current titles include Excess Materials Logistic Managers or Sanitation Engineers, but I knew them as the Garbage Collectors. I'd wave big and they'd do the same, and sometimes they'd even shout out a greeting and I'd give a big hey back. That was a special start to the day. In the summer, when they came down our alley early on Mondays and Thursdays, I would already be up and dressed and hanging on the back gate to catch a glimpse of that trio of trash. Two collectors, one picking up each can, and of course the driver of the big garbage truck. It was the only time in the week that not even a feline from hell could deter me. That's not exactly true. I do recall one morning calling out, screaming and crying for Mom to rescue me after the truck had passed because the panther from next door was blocking my return path to the safety of the back porch, again with the marauding cat. In the last couple of years we lived on Capitol, I began my formal schooling, and compared to the relative lack of schedule that my preschool years afforded, Nancy and I, and my mom, my entrance into kindergarten produced a send-off each morning to school that was not always the easiest. You see, we now had a black-and-white television. Not RCA, Philco, Crosley, or Dumont. Those were all the ones that sat later on the Primrose basement workbench for my dad to repair. But this one, Dad had made from a Heath kit. He also later assembled a color TV in that same basement workshop. And so in addition to taking my folks into early game shows, evening variety shows, and comedies from the golden age of television, it also became part of my morning routine to watch shows like Romper Room, Ding Dong School, and the latest entry into children's programming, Captain Kangaroo. Suddenly, starting school 
was the hardest thing for a five-year-old to do because he had to drag himself away from Miss Nancy in her magic mirror, Miss Frances ringing her school bell, and the captain, all other types of quality children's programming. For a period of time, though, having read about it in TV Guide, Mom began pulling rank and tuning the TV channel to The Today Show with Dave Garraway on NBC, which was WFBM Channel 6 in Indianapolis. It was her connection with the adult world when normally she had to be home with only two kids. Admittedly, the Today Show didn't always enthrall me as a primary-aged child. But I recall that for several weeks, early in first grade, I was nearly late or actually tardy every day because I could not get out of the door without seeing the latest talking dog that Mr. Garraway featured to hear its vocabulary. The Today Show combed the nation for verbal canines, auditioned them, and the viably potential hound and owner got to come to the show and perform. They were paid $5 a word, the owners, not the dogs, and Mom and I would thoughtfully determine if the vocabulary offerings were indeed recognizable. And then, and only then, did I hurry out the door for a day of formal foundational training with my teacher. Anyway, it was a different time. And I remember even as a kindergartner, I walked the half block north to 40th Street, where I was escorted by an adult traffic guard across the four lanes of capital traffic to the other corner where James Wickham Riley School No. 43 stood, providing the closest in quality public education, K-8 through grade. All this at age 5 and later age 6. I'm sure Mom... Never a mommy. She found that term too whiny. She watched me from the elevated front porch until I was safely delivered for a morning of formal instruction. And probably only then did she take Nancy back inside to begin their daily routine. But I felt I was on my own, but still knowing that mom never had me out of her sight. I remember getting my knuckles wrapped in kindergarten one day by my teacher, because I was throwing balls of clay. I waited until Dad got home from work. We were seated at the table for supper, and I then indignantly told my folks what that teacher had done to me. That was when I was rudely introduced to the fact that Mom and Dad would most likely side with the teacher in all matters of rules and obedience. In that case, I received a whipping, all to make certain such foolishness in the classroom would not happen again. I also remember the day that the kitchen range caught fire, flames visible in the backyard where Nancy and I played. We were whisked away by neighbors out of the way of the firefighters that Mom had called. It was actually out before they arrived as Dad had shut off the gas, but not before he had burned off all his eyebrows. Thinking back, That absent set of brows was a badge of honor for Dad, a symbol of his bravery for Mom for quite some time. He may have even plucked his eyebrows once they started growing back just to maintain the aura and the allure. Certainly events from those years shaped my psyche, but it's the primrose proceedings that compose the majority of this podcast and to which we will return next week. Actually, 
If you've noted the episode schedule that's available on the fans of the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page, next week is the tribute to my dad. And two weeks after that, there's a 4th of July recollection. My wife Diane and I will be making new memories with our kids and grandkids in Hilton Head, South Carolina. That's Father's Day weekend, creating the week break that follows it. Thanks to all who joined in on the first fans of the Primrose Chronicles Zoom call last Thursday. It was fun, and it'd be great to see others of you as well the next time we do it. So be watching. It'll be announced on the fans of the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page later this month. So until next time, when we head back over to a time when life's a brand new day, life's a brand new way on Primrose Lane, uh, Primrose Avenue. Until then, blessings. Blessings.